Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So imagine going to a gym and you walk into the gym and there's a bench press there and there's a thousand pounds on the bench press and someone comes up to you and you've never lifted weights in your life. You've never lifted a weight in your life. There's a thousand pounds on the bench press and someone comes up to you, we've got some guys that can really teach you how to do this well in this, in this church, and they, they say, here's the technique, here's what it looks like to bench press and not injure yourself. Here's what you do with your shoulders and your back and your head, and you stay flat on the bench, or you don't lift your butt off the bench, and here's how you avoid hurting yourself. And they teach you, they give you all the instructions for bench pressing, and then they say, Okay, there it is. You know how to do it. Now sit down and lift that 1,000 pounds, bench press that 1,000 pounds. That would be insane because they instruct you how to do it. They teach you how to do it, but you still don't have the power to do it. And it's very similar in the Christian walk in that we get this moral code. We get this ethic that Jesus gives us. Well, that God gives us way back in the Old Testament. And this moral code is called the law. And we learned when we went through the Sermon on the Mount that the law teaches you how to live, but it doesn't give you the power to live that way. So God gives us the law as his people because he wants us to reflect to the world around us his beautiful and loving character so that everybody can know what God is like based on how we act, based on how we live. But he tells us to do things that are actually impossible. We can't do it. And so over and over again in the, in the Old Testament, we see that God, after he gives his people, the nation of Israel, this nation that he started with, to show, to reflect to the world his goodness and his character. After he gives them the law, they fail in keeping it over and over. All through the Old Testament, they fail in keeping it. And why would God give us something to do that we can't do on our own? Because he wants us to see that we need someone more powerful and more capable outside of ourselves in order to keep it, because we, get re- we start feeling really good about ourselves when we're able to obey the law. We feel really good about ourselves, and we're not supposed to feel really good ourse- about ourselves. We're supposed to feel really good about God and his capacity, his ability, his lending hand in helping us live lives of obedience. God asks us to do things we can't do because it makes us acutely aware of our need for him. Now, imagine going back into the weight room. There's a 1,000 pounds on the bench. Someone gives you instructions on how to do it. And then you sit down and they say, go ahead now, lift this 1,000 pounds. You still have the instructions, but, with, but you don't have the power. And then they put a beast of a human being in the spotting position, and then a beast of a human being on the left side and on the right side of the bench press, and they say, now do it, and we're going to spot you. We're going to help you do it. That's kind of what the Christian life 
is. That's what it looks like. He tells us what to do. We can't do it in our own strength. And then he enables us to live in obedience. So the Old Testament, in a, just if we think about this in very simple terms, the Old Testament introduces us to the instructions of the law. The New Testament shows us where we get the power to obey the law. That's a very simple way of saying it, but essentially, that's how we relate to the law today. And we're wrapping up a, a series on what it looks like to have a quiet time. We don't want quiet time to be a duty or a drag. It should feel like delight because it's all about connection. So we're putting together a goal for all of us by the end of the year to have this quiet time with the Lord that is enjoyable and that is sustainable and that's been enriching and feeding and nourishing us through the year. So the elements of this quiet time, it's in your notes, it's silence, starting your time with a brief silence, and then reading a psalm. I would suggest reading the same psalm for the entire week, and then reading through the gospel just a paragraph at a time. Gospels, the biographical accounts of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Journal a little bit, something that you're learning, something that stands out. Don't try to be super profound. Just journal something that you learned from the passage. And prayer, and then ending with silence again. And for our final thought today, I want to focus on that little piece that's reading through the gospel at a paragraph a time. Because... This all comes down to Jesus. Jesus is the main character of the Gospels. He's the main character of the New Testament. He's the main character of the Old Testament. And that's sometimes that we don't realize that the Old Testament is actually all about Jesus. So you need to know a little bit something about Jesus. And for some of you, this is going to be a review. For some of it might be completely new. But we're going to focus on him today because you're going to get to know him more and more as you're reading through the Gospels a paragraph at a time. So let's go through our notes here. The first thing that I want you to know is Jesus fulfills and obeys the law with perfection. God's people in the Old Testament were given the opportunity to obey the law. They failed over and over and over and over. That's that was kind of the point of the Old Testament in relationship to the law. People end up doing whatever they wanted to do. And in the New Testament, God sends his son into the world and Jesus obeys the law perfectly. Now this is going to get into a little bit of some, this is kind of actually really cool, um, a little bit of profound territory here because Jesus is actually reliving the lifespan of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He's, he's reliving the decisions that they had to make, but he's making them perfectly. In all the ways they were disobedient, in all the ways they failed in keeping God's impossible standards, Jesus is actually going to relive their history personally, himself, and make all the right decisions. He's going to obey the law perfectly. And Scripture gives us these fascinating clues, these compelling clues in the Old Testament where it's showing us that actually this is all about Jesus. And then Jesus comes and we look backwards through the life of Jesus and see the Old Testament. So uh, let me just give you some examples of that. How Jesus lived perfectly where God's chosen nation, the people of Israel, weren't able to. All right. Um, so... 
The nation of Israel was born, and then they went and eventually lived in Egypt. And they were freed from Egypt, but they lived in Egypt for a while. So in order for God to help us think back to Israel when we're looking at the life of Jesus, Jesus was born, and then there's this guy named Herod who's in political power. He wanted to kill Jesus. So Jesus' half-dad, Joseph, was warned in a dream about that. And where'd they move to? Egypt. Um, the nation of Israel spent 40 years after Egypt in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. How does Jesus point back to that? Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he launched into his public ministry. The nation of Israel passed through the Jordan River in order to get to the promised land. That was kind of a big deal in the Old Testament. Jesus passed through the Jordan River in his baptism before he launched into his public ministry. Uh, the nation of Israel their leader went up on a mountain to receive the law from God. Jesus went up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and, or not, Moses went on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Jesus went up on a mountain to give a deeper interpretation of the law that Moses received. The nation of Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus picked 12 disciples. It just goes on and on and on and on. The whole point of the Old Testament is summed up in one word. It's Jesus. It's all over the place. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. The whole point is where God's people were not able to live in perfect obedience, Jesus was. It's kind of like, and I've used this illustration before, but it's so good. It's the sixth sense. It's that movie. I won't give away the ending this time. I think last time I gave it away. At the end of the movie with Bruce Willis, who's an underrated actor, Tremendous actor. Um, even back in Moonlighting with Sybil Shepherd, but I'm not going to get distracted. So Bruce Willis, great actor, Sixth Sense. And at the end of the movie, this reveal is made that is just mind-blowing. You didn't see it. You, there's no way you could have seen this ending. But after you see it, the best way to watch this movie is to watch it after you watch the whole thing because then you go back through and you're like oh my goodness yeah he was it totally makes sense you see it everywhere the secret that was kept I mean I keep wanting to say it but I can't say it. the key the secret that was kept until the very end and revealed at the end you see clues everywhere throughout the entire movie that that is actually true and you're like how did I miss it that's the same thing with the Old Testament in the New Testament People's eyes were starting to pop and open after Jesus was resurrected, and he started telling people and showing people, walk to Emmaus. He gives this long sermon about, look, the whole, whole Old Testament was pointing to me. That was the whole point. So that's the big reveal. The first thing we find out is Jesus fulfills and obeys the law with perfection that we wouldn't be able to obey without him, that the people in the Old Testament without, before Jesus weren't able to obey. Two, Jesus provides the path of what perfect obedience looks like with his life and teachings. The whole point of Jesus, whenever he teaches in the, in the New Testament, is to say, it's not just hard to obey this, it's impossible. You can't. Because the point of the New Testament isn't to help you become a better person, it's to help you become a dependent person on God instead of yourself, which is correcting the first sin we did when we thought we were God. 
the law just reminds us that there is a God and it's not me. And I think I'd need his help to obey it. Um, so let's modernize. Let's take, for example, one of his teachings. Well, let's look at the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I was thinking of a way, how could I, what's something for me that's really difficult to do that I can't do in my own strength? And one of the things that really gets me, we've got some um, semi-truck drivers in here that are awesome, awesome, wonderful people, and they don't do stuff like this, but one out of a thousand semi-truck drivers, for some reason, they'll get behind me on 30, and they will be like this far from my bumper. Like for, I mean, I'm going like seven miles over, that's what I do, I go seven miles over the speed limit, I'm sorry, it's, it's within the, it's okay. So I'm going seven miles over the speed limit, and there's the semi-truck is right on me, and he's right on my bumper, I'm like, just go around, just go around me. So it's, it's actually easy for me, I can do this in my own strength, when, when he or she goes around me, to not like, you know, do something that I'm going to regret later, not do something overtly rude. I'm not going to do any hand signals or anything like that. I'm not going to be yelling at them. I'm not going to be giving them a dirty look. That's easy for me to do. I, I can do that in my own strength. But Jesus would take it further and say, what you ought to do is when they pull over to pass you, you should slow down to make it easier for them, and you should do the thing where you flash your brights and they know they can pull over. Make it as easy as possible for them, and pray a blessing for them and their family as they're passing. Pray good into their life. You're not supposed to curse people. You're supposed to bless people as Christians. And the, you know, the hardest thing to do is to bless those who curse you, and that's kind of one of the proof evidence that you're actually a Christian, that this thing is real in you because you want good things for people that want bad things for you. So that would be an example. For me, that would be really hard to do because it's such a pet peeve and it's an opportunity for me to say, okay, God, I'm obviously not there yet. You got some more work to do on me. And that's, that's a lot of times what I pray in situations like that. All right, in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us a new way of living where we are giving radical love and grace to everybody. And it wasn't just Jesus' teachings. He didn't just talk about this. He lived it. The gospel accounts, we've talked about this before, give us case studies. What does it look like to live a perfect human life? And they're filled with these case studies. You see Jesus in all these different situations and you get to see how you would act ideally in the same type of situation. If you're reading through the gospel slowly, a paragraph at a time, this, this ideal way of living, living will begin to take shape in your life. So I'm going through Luke. And some of you saw this on Facebook this, this week. I, I got a lesson in people-pleasing. Like, there's, a, there's a paragraph in Luke that's all about people-pleasing for me. And there's, you can look it up later, it's Luke 4, 16 through 30. Jesus goes back to Nazareth where he was raised. It's hard to do ministry where, you're, where you were raised, it really is. Um, and he goes to the synagogue, and when you went to the synagogue, you're a Jewish man, you could go up and you could read from one of the scrolls, so they handed him a scroll. And Jesus, it was Isaiah, it's a really hard book. Jesus opens it up and he reads, you know, Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He reads this section of Isaiah that everybody in the room would have understood that's talking about the Messiah. They would have all known it. And then he sits down. It says everybody's looking in the synagogue. Everybody's looking at Jesus. He sits down. He's just, they're all staring at him. And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled. He's saying, it's me. 
It's, it's a claim that he is God, that he is a Messiah. And at that point, it says, everyone in the synagogue is speaking well of him. They marvel at his gracious words. Think about that. He's in this big room. He's in a church. And everyone's marveling at his gracious words. They all think, everybody thinks really well. What a guy, man. Jesus is, that guy's awesome. They love him. Now, this was a very misguided, hard-hearted group. And Jesus knew that they needed to hear some hard things. And I think I would have not said those things because I would have enjoyed everybody in the room liking me. But Jesus can't leave well enough alone. He loves them so much that he says some really hard things. I mean, no one ever trained him in the principle of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. He just gives the medicine. He doesn't give the love sandwich where you say something nice and then you give them the hard news and you say something nice at the end. You're, people walk away from the conversation like, well, was that a affirming or was that a bad conversation? I'm not really sure what that was. Jesus just gives it straight. He does not mess around, especially when people need it, but he always says it in love. So he says some really hard things to this group. Basically, he's saying, you guys, are gonna, you guys wouldn't recognize the Messiah if he was sitting in the room with you. Like, you're going to reject, this place is going to reject people because they've done it, you've done it in the past. You're going to reject me. That's essentially what his message was to them. And then after that, how do you think they took it? Everyone in the room was filled with wrath. And they tried to kill him. They brought him outside to a cliff. He kind of, I don't know how he does it. He's, he got out of the situation somehow. Like he slipped between everybody and he was gone and they're like trying to push him over the cliff and it's like he's just not here anymore. They started just loving him. They thought he was great. And then he talked. And then they tried to kill him. There's a lot of lessons in there concerning people pleasing for me. There's a lot of things that we can take away from that. Jesus will say the truth and he doesn't particular mind, particularly mind how you respond to it. He doesn't take responsibility for your response. That's hard to do. I'm a people pleaser. I don't like people not liking me. Jesus didn't seem to mind it. Lot to learn from his life. So we don't just hear him teaching about this new ethic of how to really love people well because you're not loving people well if you're a people pleaser. You're just thinking about yourself. He doesn't just teach us how to do that. He shows us how to do that. Okay, so... There's a million lessons like that in the gospel. Every time you see Jesus in the gospel, you're going to learn something about how he responds to a situation. So we've learned that Jesus fulfills and obeys the law with perfection. We've learned that Jesus provides the path of what perfection, perfect obedience looks like with his life and teachings. And finally, we see, number three, Jesus provides the propulsion for obedience through the Spirit. Think jet engine propelling you forward. Jesus shows us the path and then he provides the propulsion. Like, he pushes us down the path of obedience. We're not trying to get down the path of obedience in our own strength. He's more than just an example. He's a great teacher, yes. He's a great example, yes. But if he was just that, he'd be like some guru that you would look at his life and 
be like, wow, we'll never be like that guy. He just sits and meditates on a mountain all day, and he's just going to be impossible to live up to. He's not just a guru that shows us how to live. He actually gives us the power to live that way. All the ways that you don't think you can live as a flourishing human being, he can help you with that. All the ways that you make yourself smaller in certain situations, he can help you with that. All the ways you become younger when someone looks at you a certain way, it reminds you of the way your dad looked at you or your mom looked at you. All the ways that you shrink as a human being and you become less human, all the things that keep you from thriving as a person, Jesus can help with that. All the ways that you don't want to love other people or you want to take care of yourself or protect yourself, Instead of truly caring and loving for people, Jesus can help you with that. He provides the path and the propulsion. If he just showed us the path and didn't give us the power to actually live that way, it would be incredibly frustrating. But Jesus, whose entire life was lived in the power of the Spirit, died on a cross and was resurrected back to life so that we could live in the power of the Spirit too. And you'd be surprised if you really thought about it, how hard it is to live obediently in the mundane moments of life. Like, it's, so, it's really easy for me to be godly on Sunday mornings. But it's hard for me to be godly when there's a semi-truck like five feet from my bumper. It's, it's hard to show up to work every day sometimes. And everybody faces different things in your life. It's just hard in the mundane moments of life. In fact, that's where we need the Spirit's help the most. One of my um, seminary professors put it this way. He said, oftentimes, life is going to feel thoroughly and painfully mundane. Jesus must have been tempted in feeling that way, showing up to the carpentry workshop every day with his dad when he was younger. Oh yeah, if you didn't know that, Jesus was blue collar most of his life. He probably had calloused hands, bloody hands when he's working. They would work with stones. It wasn't just wood back then, it was stones. So he was probably, he was probably a pretty tough guy. Um, I don't want to make too much of that, but he knew how to do stuff. He knew how to work with his hands. He must have been tempted to want to escape it and go experience other things. The Spirit enabled him for every moment of his life to remain faithful, present, and consistent. The Spirit does the same thing for us. You can't listen patiently to your spouse unless the Spirit is keeping you holy. You don't honor your boss consistently over the long haul throughout all the boring meetings if the Spirit isn't empowering you to treat your boss in a loving and patient way. You don't make it as a human unless the Spirit is empowering you, not only in the big and powerful moments, but in all the moments, even the mundane moments. We get the idea sometimes that the Holy Spirit is a tugboat. And there's times in your life when you just, you need more of them. And so he gives you a, you know, he comes along, gives you a little bit extra, of a, a boost, a pull to get you through a, you know, a narrow canal or something. And then it just sets you out into the ocean, the sea to just be free and you don't really need him anymore. The Spirit of God is not a tugboat that just shows up when you need it. The Spirit of God is there always sustaining us, even now. 
even with what's, what you're thinking and what's going through your head or as you're listening to this, as you're paying attention, the Spirit of God is sustaining everything that's happening in this room. So I want to get just very practical as we end this. Um, as, because as you're reading through a gospel and you hear a teaching of Jesus in the gospel or you see an example that's impossible for you to follow, I want you to know what to do with that. And that's how we're going to end this series. So here's what you do. You're reading and you see an impossible example that Jesus sets. There's no way I could say hard things to people that really, really like me at the moment, that they're not gonna like me after I say it, even if it's the most loving thing I can do, which it always is. There's no way I can do that, God. So what do I do? A, confess that you fall short. Just admit it. I'm not there, God. I am not there. And apparently, I'm more concerned about myself than I am loving people enough to have these conversations. Admit how your disobedience hurts other people. This is a big one I think that sometimes we, we miss in prayer. When we're confessing a sin or a way that we've fallen short of God's perfection, don't just think about it how it relates to your relationship with God. How does it relate to the people that are hurting because of your lack of whatever, because you did whatever? And confess to God, man, I really hurt these people because I said this or I was impatient. I hurt this person. That's an important step in it. And if you can't think of anything that you've done, and like even just like the last week, I can't think of any way that I've disobeyed God. That's insane, but um, here's, here's a passage that might be of encouragement. 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you can't ever think of anything you've done wrong, if you can't, you know, our prayer should always have confession, ways that we're falling short, because we're always falling short. And if you can't think of anything, then it means you're like living in this illusion, you know, someone said we build empires of illusion where we think we're living perfectly and we, we're in control of everything. You should confess that then because you're not in control of everything. So the first thing is if we can't think of things that we're, where we're living in a disobedience, we're deceiving ourselves. The second thing is we make God a liar. That's 1 John 8, 10, or 1 John 1, 10. It says if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this is something for me um, when I'm paying attention I'm asking for God's help there's always things that he shows me that you could do a little better in this so confess it the second thing receive forgiveness God's like usually when you confess sin God's like okay that's all you had to do just admit it and you're forgiven see confess it and you're forgiven Steve Brown says no matter what you've done if you run to God he won't be angry with you either and that's, that's kind of our message to the world. No matter what you've done, if you run to God, he's not going to be mad at you either. And half of Steve Brown's ministry, he said, is telling Christians that God's not mad at you. <laughs> Most of us think God's disappointed in us. We confess where we fall short. We receive forgiveness. This is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the last thing is to move forward in the power of the Spirit. It's funny, 
when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to everything else, this isn't true, but when it comes to Christianity, the harder you try, the worse you get. That's weird. The harder you try, the worse you get. I tried to find in this, uh, in my backlog of sermons when I last told this story, I know I told it here sometimes, so some of you have heard it, but I think it's been a long time, so I'm going to say it again. It's this Watchman Nee story. Watchman Nee was a missionary in China, and um, he tells about this retreat, this men's retreat that he had, and there was all these guys that were sitting on the beach during one of their breaks, and some of them were out swimming in the ocean, and one of the guys went out a little bit too far, and he wasn't a really strong swimmer, and he couldn't touch the ground, so he was, like, kept dipping below, and he was starting to panic, and he couldn't swim. Everyone else was coming in. He starts flailing around, and he's drowning. And there's, meanwhile, on the beach, there's a guy that's like this Olympic-level swimmer, apparently, and he's just sitting on his chair watching this guy flail around, and people are starting to get uncomfortable, like, dude, you see what's going on out there? You're going to get up? We, like, we're not strong enough to do something. Are you going to help this guy, or are you going to just sit and watch? And the guy's just, he doesn't even look at him. He just keeps his eye on the guy. He's just watching him. And the guy starts getting really desperate. He's flailing around like crazy. He's yelling. He's screaming, help. Like, somebody, come on, somebody help me, somebody help me. And he stops. And then people are starting to panic, like, get out there and get this guy. We're not strong enough. We can't. You're the only one that can actually swim well. Go out and get him. The guy's flailing around. And finally, he, like, stops and his head begins to dip just below the surface so this guy finally stands up walks to the water swims out drags him in puts him on the beach and he's totally fine the guy's fine he's just terrified and they asked the swimmer why the heck did you wait so long man this guy could have drowned and he said because i had to wait for him to quit to surrender if i would have gone out when he's filling this he would have Knocked me out, we would have both drowned. I had to wait for him to give up. The beginning of the victorious Christian life for us is surrender. It's the moment we quit trying to be obedient in our own strength, in our own power. We give up. And we say, you know what, I'm actually learning I'm not really a patient person, and I don't think I can fix it. I don't think I can do anything about it. So I'm sorry that I did it again, I yelled again, I had a bad tone again, and I need your help. Have mercy on me. And that's the beginning of the journey towards obedience, towards real change. Because, you know, the saddest thing in the world, I've said this before, the, the saddest and most pitiful thing in the world is if someone were come, to come back to this church in five years and look at each of us that are here right now and we haven't changed. Like, we just got older. Our skin got older. We haven't become more gentle and gracious and others-focused less obsessive about ourselves, more thinking about how I can lay aside my own comfort to make someone else's life better and great, less fragile emotionally, because dead people don't really feel all that much. We've been crucified in Christ, and been raised new in him as well. The saddest thing and the hardest thing and 
would be for someone to come in and see that we haven't actually changed at a deep level. And that's one of the things that your quiet time will enable you to do to change at a deep level. But it begins with surrender. All right. That's it for this series. Next week, uh, Pastor Al is going to be teaching part two of his the three-part contentment series. He did it um, after Christmas, the first part. And he's going to be doing part two next week. And then after that, I have a, a one-time standalone sermon I'll give. And the week after that, then, we are dipping into Ephesians. And you can be praying for me. Because if Isaiah is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, Ephesians is the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It is a doozy. I have no idea what he's saying in the first three chapters, so be praying for me. We'll start that in four weeks. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Um, thank you so much that you give us a desire to spend time with you. I'm thinking of Philippians 2.13 where it says, you, it's God who's at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we can even start with that. We can come to you saying, you know, I'd really like to have this quiet time. I'd like to have a regular time where I'm going slowly through Scripture. And I'm willing to want to do that. And maybe that's the place where some of us start. Just being willing to want to do that. And you can work with that. That's an honest prayer. But I pray that you would give every person in this room and every person watching this morning online a desire to spend time with you and not just to have a spiritual goal or religious goal, but because we believe that you have the words of salvation and where else would we go? And I pray that as we spend time with you in this way, you would actually begin to change us. Thank you that you've given us your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, you lived it perfectly. You show us the path to obedience and then you propel us down that path with the spirit. And um, couldn't do it without you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.